I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And normally you'd be listening to us on Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. But today, today is an off week, and so you are listening to Hawk Talk, where we talk hawks. Basically just hawks, specifically hawks and nothing else, as we have for our previous Hawk Talk episodes. Well, occasionally we discuss relevant maintenance concepts. Like, for example, if someone calls in and their their hawk is having carburetor issues, we'll talk more about carburetors and some of, some of the things that come up with them, and maybe some of their other issues in, in migratory and... and um, migratory birds and other raptor species yeah although i gotta say every time i bring my hawk in to get checked out like whatever horrible screeching sounds the hawk was making it just won't make it at the hawk mechanic we're actually (laughs) going to talk about movies okay we're actually going to talk about movies but first our usual hawk talk preamble this is not a normal episode of jane miles explain the x-men if you're starting off here then good luck uh maybe start with one of our 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 numbered episodes um this is unedited it is unprepared for almost entirely and this time it's especially weird yeah and it's not about the x-men the x-men really aren't going to make many appearances in this this is this is basically our compromise to the we were exhausted and burned out and we didn't want to go entirely off the air for a week out of every month because people were asking us to to keep going just sort of for a sense of normalcy and continuity but we needed some kind of break so so every fourth episode is is just kind of random nonsense exactly for as long as our current uh worldwide nonsense goes on at least um but speaking of nonsense jay you have had a hell of a week yeah, I definitely appreciate running water a lot more than I did a week ago. So for those of you who have been keeping up, my wife T and I have mostly been living with her parents in rural Connecticut because New York is terrifying if you um, have respiratory issues and, and you know, it's the middle of a pandemic and there's a lot, it's a lot. But um, her parents are lovely and they live in rural Connecticut and they have a very large house and they've been cool with us basically coming out and crashing with them indefinitely. However... Uh, both of our jobs require pretty much continual high-speed internet access. T is the editorial director at King Features Syndicate, which is is where the comic strips come from. And um, I have a day job that's totally unrelated to anything you care about, but which involves continual processing and download and, and re-upload of, of very large audio files. And um, there was this tropical storm, and the power went out. And the fun thing about rural areas is that... that you know, often they're connected to well water rather than than um, city water systems. And what that means is that when the power goes out, the water also goes out. So after several days of, well, they've got to fix it eventually, we finally hit the, we've got to go back to work eventually. This is getting ridiculous point. So we are we are back in New York again very temporarily right now as we record this. Hopefully by the time it goes up, no, it's going up tomorrow. So by the time it goes up, we are not going to be back in Connecticut. But they're 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 projecting maybe things will be back going on Tuesday, which is going to be about a full week. And so um yeah, so it's it's been it's been an interesting week. I've been doing a whole lot of reading, which has been great. Um I have I have some I somehow missed the works of Diana Wynne Jones completely until this week. And then uh, T read the first Christomancy book aloud to me because we read books to each other a lot. And it was amazing and I love it. And I'm going to read them all now. Diana Wynne-Jones is terrific. I have I have also, um, I, I read uh, Rose Daughter, which is Robin McKinley's second Beauty and the Beast retelling. <laughs> that, that's about gardening mostly. It, which is, is also also a really lovely book. And um, I have read almost all of uh, Into the Drowning Deep, which is a novel by Mira Grant, who is Seanan McGuire when she is writing 
specific genres that are ones other than the ones she's best known for as Sean and McGuire. And it is an extremely good horror novel about mermaids. That's so much reading. I don't read nearly as much as I as I would like to. I, I read a lot of comics mainly. I'm currently working my way through all of Wolverine. Um, and I suspect anyone listening to this podcast knows that that is a uh, somewhat ambitious goal. Uh, but there's a lot of it. And a lot of it is really fun and really ridiculous. How much Wolverine can there be? Like 10, 15 issues? <laughs> right. Um, but we are not talking about comics. We are very specifically not talking about comics today. So in past Hawk Talk episodes, we've talked about some of the media we grew up on, and we figured we would continue that trend because people seem to enjoy that um, and talk about some of the movies we grew up on. Although I got to say, if we keep this up, we're going to have to get sort of weirder and weirder. Like, what are our favorite performance art pieces? What are our favorite Banksy paintings? Like, we're, we're kind of covering all the easy answers now. Spoken like someone who didn't discover Spalding Gray at age eight. Uh, there, there is that, yeah. Uh, we saw him once. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I've seen him live a couple times, and I'm really, really glad that I did because he's someone who's really, really influenced me as a writer. And getting to actually you know, tell him that before, like the, the fact that I, I was able to tell him that and thank him for that before he died is, is something that's pretty important to me. Yeah, no, that's I'm, re- I'm really glad too. Um, but okay, movies. So... As with much media, we grew up with some pretty different stuff. A little bit. Uh, so let's go through just sort of a, a rundown of some of that. Um, Jay, would you like to start or shall I start? I feel like you should start because I'm going to be so far out in left field for this. An important thing to know if you're just tuning in now is that I kind of grew up in a box. I, um, My parents are lovely people, but they are not super connected to, to the popular cultures. And I was not a particularly socially inclined kid and did not pick things up through cultural osmosis, really. And so I I just really wasn't plugged into pop media until maybe like college age. So um, the stuff I was really into and was consuming as a kid was was a mix of things I watched with my parents and things I watched at friends' birthday parties. So pretty, pretty wide ends of a spectrum. Miles, on the other hand was comparatively normal as a kid and I so I feel like we should start with you and then I can kind of branch off okay okay that sounds good um well there was a lot of the more uh, mainstream stuff that I think a lot of people of of our generation checked out but I'm going to start with something a little bit less known that is near and dear to my heart I watched this movie on a decaying VHS tape that was taped off television so um there were commercials in the middle of it I think it started like partway into the opening credits you know anybody again who grew up in the 80s is gonna gonna be familiar I suspect but can you quiz them on it by singing the theme song and seeing if they remember it because you've been texting me lyrics from it all day Oh, yes. Okay, so just imagine this as sung by a folk singer from the 70s who could actually sing but it went a little something like Flight of dragons beyond all fantasy in the skies or in my mind. But like really warbly and, and wavery. Um, You're making and with it sound of, really sinister. Oh, well, um, no, Mr. Sinister's not in it. Uh, that, see, that's why I'm not a folk singer. I would just sound too sinister. But yes, <laughs> so Flight of Dragons was an, a Rankin-Bass animated movie. Like, I know they're mostly known for the stop-motion-y stuff, like all the Christmas movies and stuff. But uh, they also did this, I think, made-for-TV movie called Flight of Dragons, which is about this this magic world where there are these four wizards. There's, like, the red one, the green one, the blue one, and the yellow one, and they all have cool different dragons, 
um, and uh, their, their world's getting all messed up because it's coming into contact with technology. So they go into the future and find this nerd who's obsessed with dragons and bring him back in time to help. And he has to go on this quest with like a talking wolf and his body gets merged with a dragon. And there's this very British knight and this princess with hair down to her feet. And it's okay. I mean, by adult standards, I'm not going to say it's great, but I loved this movie so much as a child. It was just so intense. And the wizards were all these different bright colors and James Earl Jones voiced the bad guy. And it was so much fun. So I've actually been thinking about that movie this week. And the reason for that is that, Peter Dickinson, who's the person who wrote the novel that it's based on and for whom the main character is named, was married to Robin McKinley. And really? specifically, he and Robin McKinley got married between her writing Beauty and her writing Rose Daughter. And the entire introduction to Rose Daughter is about how, yeah, she married this guy and then he got her super into gardening. And that was Peter Dickinson. I had no idea. <laughs> Suddenly the world is like better than it was. That's amazing. No, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Everyone in sci-fi and fantasy knows each other. Everyone. And they're all, like, all of them are in, like, the same three bands, too. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I, I believe that. Oh, that's so cool. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Flight of Dragons, like, I, I think it was put out on DVD and a Blu-ray with terrible cropping to make it seem widescreen. I don't know if it's going to hold up, but, like, you could do a lot worse with spending an hour and a half than, than watching that movie and getting its theme song stuck in your head. By virtue of having lived with you for a number of years, I've seen that movie many times and saw it for the first time, not as an adult, but much older than its target audience. And the animation is really, really beautiful. The animation and designs, um, they're a lot of fun. It's there. There's a lot of it that, that feels dated, that feels very much of its era in the ways that, that Rankin and Bass movies do. But it's it's well worth at least a watch. Sweet. Yeah, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um Talking about movies that I believe I also showed you for the first time, do you remember the time we skipped school to watch The Dark Crystal? Because you've never seen it. I was actually it? talking with you about that today. That was Valentine's Day of, se of senior year. And the fact that it was Valentine's Day was irre irrelevant. But before, like, double zero or zero period class, because our class schedule was all wonky, um, we were talking about movies. And I mentioned that I'd never, you, you mentioned The Dark Crystal. I mentioned I'd never seen it. And you were like, let's cut school and watch it. And it was amazing because you never suggested cutting school. You were like the good kid. <laughs> I'm just saying we all have our, our breaking points. And mine was the fact that my favorite person had not seen The Dark Crystal. Well, as I recall, we watched not only The Dark Crystal that day, but Labyrinth. Yeah. And I, I feel like a lot of people who grew up in that era, again, it's a very era specific thing, were either Labyrinth kids or Dark Crystal kids. And if they were Labyrinth kids, probably David Bowie's bulge awakened their sexuality in some capacity or another. Um, I was a Dark Crystal kid. Uh, I just, I don't know, it was such an imaginative world done fully with puppetry. And like Brian Froud did the designs. And I loved Brian Froud, even as a kid. Um, I had his uh, Goblins book that I was in love with. Well, those and, are the um, Goblins from Labyrinth. Uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of those goblin designs were used in Labyrinth, absolutely. Um, so I guess it does all come together. But yeah, the Dark Crystal, it's just, it's so cool and imaginative and, like, scary. And I gotta say, like, I'm re I didn't watch horror movies or anything as a kid. I, I've seen very, almost no slasher movies, even as all of my teenage friends were obsessed with them, or even before they were teenagers. But the Dark Crystal just had this, like, this threatening spookiness to it that was just uh, fascinating to me as a child. It's, it was a beautiful movie. Like, I'd never seen anything that had that kind of, of texture to it. It wasn't puppetry trying to look like real life. It was, it was something entirely else. 
Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, there's um a, like a, a Netflix series that's sort of a, a prequel to it. I, I haven't seen it. Have you, Jay? I have, yeah. And I have, I think it's worth watching. I don't like it as much as I liked the original series or the original movie for a lot of reasons. I think it's a little bit smoother. More of the puppetry is is CG based. It's a mix of um of of practical and and computer effects. But it's yeah, it's it's worth a watch. It's very very beautiful. And it's 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 designs are are just as good as the original and and the Skeksis are of course absolutely delightful. Oh man. So I remember um I don't remember if this was when you were when you were in Portland or not, Jay, but uh did you see it on the big screen when it came to the I think Hollywood Theater? I honestly don't remember. Possibly. Oh, well, okay, well, at least I did, and possibly you did, but um, seeing it on the big screen with a good print versus the just disintegrating VHS tape I'd initially seen it on, oh, man, just getting to see some of those little details of the puppetry, like, it was it was overwhelmingly cool. You mentioned VHS tapes, and I think that's kind of salient to this conversation, because I feel like so much of how we discovered movies as kids, and especially as teenagers— came from the prevalence of video rental stores, which aren't really a thing that people are growing up with now. Yeah, the the only blockbuster video left in the country is in uh, Bend, Oregon, actually, not too far from me. Well, what we had, too, growing up specifically, was a place called Video Renaissance in Sarasota. I don't know if it still exists. I know the original owner has has long since died, but it was this amazing little hole-in-the-wall place, and the the owner knew every movie in there backwards forwards and upside down and every single customer who'd ever had come in like he had a phenomenal memory and you could go in and if they didn't have the thing you were looking for he'd be like okay you want this you wanted this you'll like this these other four movies have you seen any of them it was it was terrific it was sort of the best things the best aspects of a local comic shop but adapted to movies but the other thing that it let you do was browse movies basically so so video rental shops had the movie packaging out on shelves without the movies in them you could go through and you could you know read covers look at art look at back cover but that was really all you knew about movies going in and that you didn't have imdb you didn't have any of that stuff you know you didn't have rot- rotten tomatoes and so i feel like we saw a lot of stuff that neither of us would bother checking out now Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like sometimes it would totally work out and other times it totally wouldn't. Um, I remember this was later, but that's how I first discovered Dark City, which is now my favorite movie. Yes. Oh, God, that's such a good movie. It really is. I mean, I feel like that's sort of after the range we're talking about here, because I think we were both like older teenagers when we uh, when we discovered that. But um, God, it's really, really good. Uh, watch the director's cut if you can, if you haven't seen it. But the theatrical cut's great too. Um, Speaking but yeah, so, okay. of Dark City, I think one of one of my my more age appropriate obsessions was was The Crow. Oh yeah, Jay, you were you were so so a goth when you were a teenager. It was awesome. I think I tried to be a goth for about ten minutes and it totally didn't work. You pulled it off. Uh sort of. I, I was very very bad at the type of scary that I shot for and um the more the more alarming i attempted to look the more i ended up slipping uncomfortably into cute and there was a lot of weird gender performance and overperformance stuff that went with it but no it was so that movie holds up way 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 better than you'd think i watched i watched it again um this year and and was was less judgmental of teenage me than i i think i could have come out being yeah i i do remember that one being 
actually pretty good. And part of that, of course, is just the, the mythologizing of the um, the lead actor dying during filming. Yeah, Brandon um, Lee. Yeah, uh, he was he was great. Um, but yeah, it's it's really good. Um, my my fiance Anna has seen I think all of the sequels, and apparently at least some of them are worth watching if they're not all you know necessarily straight up good like the first one is. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> one of the, like we keep meaning to sit down and and have her walk me through the the rest of them. But our, I mean, she let media... you do it with Star Wars. I think that that you're obliged to let her do that with the Crow. Totally. Okay, yeah, let's talk Star Wars. Um, Jay, what, what you're referring to, of course, is um, when Anna and I got together, she was sort of proud of the fact that she had not seen Star Wars. And that wasn't completely true. She had only seen Episode One: The Phantom Menace when she worked in a movie theater when it came out. Whoa. I grew up on Star Wars, like, a lot, a lot. I remember when we were young... Um, when we were first getting close, uh, as a gift, you got me like a Star Wars technical manual, and I got you a Star Trek technical manual. Um, yes. it was like it was like a, a a sort of meeting in the middle kind of thing. Um, but yeah, Star Wars was my jam. Uh, my father was in love with those movies, and so again, disintegrating VHS tapes, I just watched them over and over and over and over. Of course, the original trilogy, based on how how old I was at the time, and. As I got older, I started reading all the novels from the expanded universe. I got really into them, especially the Timothy Zahn trilogy, to a lesser extent, the Kevin J. Anderson stuff. Um, one of my early fondest memories was going to Universal Studios with my friend Sam and going on the Star Wars ride over and over and uh, taking a picture of him about to get crushed by the big AT-AT walker that was outside. And like, I got a TIE Interceptor model that I put together and covered my fingers with glue in the process. Um, but yeah, so, uh, I showed that to Anna, not very far into our relationship, because I'm like, shit, if this is gonna work, whether you like it or not, you gotta see these movies so you know what the hell I'm talking about. We did what's called Machete Order, which is where you watch episodes 4, 5, 2, 3, 6, you skip one, it actually works really well for a beginner. But yeah, that was my jam, um, my father tells me tales of him... Uh, when I was a baby, holding me up and flying me through the air to the John Williams soundtrack to Star Wars. Which, <laughs> is that not super easy to picture? Like, you've, you've met that, my dad. Yeah, that's that's ex extraordinarily easy to picture and also pretty great. Yeah. What was your experience with Star Wars? Like, I, I know you at least saw the movies. Uh, were you into them? Did you not really care? I liked them. Um, I had a really, really good friend who was really, really into them um, when I was when I was pretty little. So, well, not, not pretty little. It was like elementary school age. So a lot of my interest in, in them came from the fact that they were something that she was super into. But I, I like Star Wars. I, I think of Star Wars as, as one of those things where I, I have no way to describe my, my relationship to it because there isn't really a term for casual enjoyment <laughs> within that circle. Um, I am not particularly invested in Star Wars. I haven't seen the, maybe the last two, definitely the last movie. Um, the, the fact Jedi that I don't know scene. which of the last movies I haven't haven't seen should be pretty telling in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I I, I enjoy it. I enjoy other people's affection for it. I I like the droids. Droids are cool. My my favorite mm. character as a small child was very definitely R two D two. I was pretty adamant on that front. Do I recall oh, actually, correctly? No, no, I did see it because my mom found years years and years ago this disc of stories that I'd written when I was in preschool, and one of them was about me saving R2-D2 and C-3PO. 
Oh, yeah. I remember you telling me about that. That was around the same time that you wrote this story about the scientists and the brick, wasn't it? It was one scientist. She found a brick. She took it to a lot of other scientists, and they all agreed that the brick was very hard because even at the age of two and a half, I understood the process of peer review and also was really boring. I think that's fucking awesome and goddamn adorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, um, th that was on, that was on the same, the same, the same, the same, uh, you know, three and a half inch floppy. Wow. I suspect so many of our, uh, childhood creations have been lost on those floppies, like tears in the magnetic rain. Alas. I'm, I'm okay with that. I wish that I'd found it again. I, I tried to find it in college, actually, so I could read it at my, my senior reading. Because <laughs> the, the creative writing majors had, had senior readings. And um, unfortunately, it, it appears to have been lost to time. But I remember that, that detail, at least. So I, I was sort of at least aware of them as part of my cultural landscape. I'd seen at least one of them. I think, I think that the one that I'd seen was Empire Strikes Back, but I'm not sure. Like, those, those movies were coming out when our parents were the age to be seeing them and really into them. So I feel like we kind of just got grandfathered into them as toddlers. Pretty much, yeah. Because um, I think the, the the third one, the last one of the original trilogy, came out in what, like the, the late 80s maybe? No, it was, like, it was way, way earlier. It was like 86, 84. Some 80 of some sort. I, I feel like I should know these things. I'm so bad at when things come out, unless they're comics, and then I know them. Um, but yeah, no, I, that's certainly something we, we grew up into, no question there. Yeah, I was much, much more of a, I, I, I come from more of a Star Trek family. <laughs> this is like the Twizzlers versus Red, Red Vines thing from Parks and Rec. And um, my mom was super, super into Star Trek and especially the original series. So I grew up on, on VHS tapes of the episodes, but also on the movies and specifically on two, three, and four, which I think of as the good movies. Six is also fairly good. The rest of them, eh. But um, The Voyage Home was like my bellwether for that, for that kind of movie and for Star Trek movies for years. Because like, think of it this way. If you're a kid who doesn't know a lot about the movies, but has a kind of esoteric and advanced sense of humor and has parents who are willing to give you the little bits of context you need, that movie's great. That movie is basically a kid comedy from the early 80s, but Star Trek. It totally is. Yeah, I remember I hadn't seen any of the Star Trek movies. And so you showed me, I, I think, yeah, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. I remember with four being like, it just felt familiar in a way. Like it yeah. was just the Star Trek version of that type of movie. Well, and it's also because it's, it's you know, the, the crew of the Enterprise ending up in 80s San Francisco. So it's grounded in our culture and... A lot of jokes that feel familiar because they're being made with with the viewer. So I, I grew up with those. Um, I had, the, had those pretty much from the start. The first movie that I can think of that was like dis distinctly and definitively my favorite movie, and Miles has been gesturing me at, at me about this all all episode, and waiting for me to say that uh, this was when I was like two and three. I was maybe or maybe like two to four, it was preschool age. And definitely starting when I was two, I was super, super into My Dinner with Andre. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with My Dinner with Andre, despite the fact that we keep referencing it on the show, how would you describe your favorite movie from when you were two to four? Um, it's, it's, it's basically a piece of existentialist art cinema. It's Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory playing versions of themselves, having a long conversation over dinner. That's the whole movie. That's it. And then Wallace Shawn catches the subway and goes home. So, like, for most little kids these days, it's what, Peppa the Pig or Baby Shark? And for you, it was Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. 
Yes. Neither of them were pigs or sharks, right? Right. I feel like, I don't know, there, you can never sum somebody up in a sentence, but I feel like you can capture a great deal of who they are with a single fact sometimes. And Jay, I feel like this fact really does describe a fair bit of your very soul. Well, the, the other part of it that sort of is, is one of those this explains a lot stories is when Miles and I were growing up, you couldn't get Disney movies very easily on tape. Like they put them out once a year around the holidays and they'd only put out one or two a year. Um, they were just they were just all catalog catalog things. So like people didn't have Disney movies. The friends I had friends who had like six or seven and that was a really big deal. And they were just, expensive too. They were super recall. expensive. They were way more. They were like 30 bucks to the usual 20 bucks for, for a VHS, which is still pretty expensive. And yeah, and they were impossible to get. And I didn't see a lot of age appropriate media. This is important to understand because I realized that we also had a cartoon on VHS. So I watched it a lot because it was for kids. Um, and as a result, again, when I was like preschool age, one of the movies I'd seen the most was was um, Belgian animated art film, Fantastic Planet. That is, I love that movie. That is not a kid's movie. The thing is, it's not not a kid's movie. Like, I guess it has, that's true. It has sex in it. My parents, my parents also were really careful about my media consumption in really specific ways. So I nominal and 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 with a lot of exceptions. So I wasn't supposed to be watching things that had a lot of graphic violence, but it was fine if I watched things that had consensual sex in them. Which that makes a lot of which sense. was cool. Yeah. And I feel like was it was a pretty healthy approach. And my parents were fairly open in talking about that stuff. So like Fantastic Planet was weird. And like the casual vi the casual cruelty in it freaked me out. But in general it it wasn't really that that far beyond what I was ordinarily allowed to watch. You mentioned Wallace Shawn, though, when we were talking about my dinner with Andre. And this is another movie that I got into through a friend. Because when I was when I was almost seven and seven, um, I carpooled with someone who initially I had never met, who lived in my neighborhood and went to the same elementary school. And she had a favorite movie. Not only did she have a favorite movie, she had a favorite movie that she watched every Wednesday, every week. Wow. And we started hanging out every, I, I don't know if she did it before on Wednesdays, but she started, we started hanging out on Wednesdays. And so we'd watch it pretty regularly together. So, and this was The Princess Bride. Yeah. Which if you're going to watch a movie like two or three times a month for a year is probably a pretty good one to go with. It is such a good movie. Like, it's one I'm a little scared to watch because I'm worried that we'll watch it again and it'll be like, oh, this is really racist or homophobic. But I don't think it is. I think it's no, just it's wholesome and wonderful and witty and smart and romantic. It's a lot of fun. Um, Count Rugen and the Prince are very clearly somehow involved. Yeah. Um, which I remember assuming was the case as a kid, too. And... There is there is a a point where there is a threat of or reference to domestic violence as a common thing, which is very much Wesley playing into the Dread Pirate Roberts role. Right, yeah, because he's trying to be all scary. And like I think that's the only that's like the only place where it really goes off those rails. And it's it's just it's so good. It's such a well put together movie. It totally is. You want to hear th something stupid about me in that movie though? Yes. Uh, so I, I'm sure this won't be a surprise to many people. I grew up as a little boy in America in the 80s, and so a movie with a prince, the title The Princess Bride, I assumed it was a girl's movie, and I didn't see it 
until I was much, much older. And of course, when I did see it, it blew my fucking mind because it was so, so good. And I felt I think that was one of my first instances of feeling betrayed by the patriarchy, although I certainly could not have labeled (laughs) that feeling that way at the time. But I was like, hey, this was awesome. And I could have see, I could have been watching this for years already, and I just didn't because I thought the title ma- meant it was girly. And, oh, man. And honestly, even if it had been girly, girly stuff is awesome, too. I remember really liking the My Little Pony movie from the 80s, the one time I saw it at a friend's house. Even but it wasn't as good parts? as The Princess Bride. What? Uh, sorry. Even the kissing parts? Uh, yes, even the kissing parts. I was not averse to kissing parts even as a young child. One of the things I really love about The Princess Bride 2 now is that now that I've read the novel the specific nuances of that adaptation are really clever. Mm-hmm. The way it was uh, switched from one medium to another while still maintaining, like, the type of medium-specific humor that the book had? Well, specifically while maintaining the cuts and the selective edits. Mm-hmm. And the yeah, way it, those are set up and justified in the book versus the movie and the spirit-rather-than-letter approach of the adaptation, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's so well done. Yeah, honestly, that's one of the best adaptations I can think of. And really, I would say I like the movie more than the book because the the book's great. The book's hilarious. But the only major female character is kind of a sexist stereotype, like essentially a dumb blonde. And in the movie, Buttercup becomes much more of an actual person, which I really appreciated. Yeah, I think Buttercup has more agency in the movie. But I also think, you know, the movie has the performances and... There are there are movies that are really well cast. There are movies where the casting will define your perspectives on those characters and that world forever, not just because it's the most vivid part. And I think The Princess Bride is the acme of those. It is just the the best cast movie that I've ever seen. Every single actor, every single performance is so spot on and owns the part so completely that any other versions, including even the written ones that have, you know, slightly different syntax or placed just differently enough that you can't quite slot them into those feel like pale comparisons. I would agree. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if I were William Goldman, I'd be really happy about that. Like, I remember um, hearing that Bob Dylan was so impressed with Jimi Hendrix's cover of All Along the Watchtower that he basically said that Hendrix now owned the song and that he was fine with that. And I feel kind of like with The Princess Bride, it's a, it's a similar deal, you know? I love that. I love the idea of that, of someone going into a story and catching and finding different hooks than the original and telling it in a way that's very, very much native to its new medium rather than just trying to reflect the old one. I think I've ranted about this at length before. I have a lot of feelings about adaptations and the responsibility of good adaptation and what a good adaptation does. And again, just the Princess Bride nails all of those. So I, I kind of want to I want to backtrack a little bit because I talked about the Princess Bride and Star Wars as things I got into through friends. And I feel like a lot of the movies I watched, I watched because they I was at a friend's house or a friend's party or because like a friend had a birthday party where everyone went to the movies. And so there are a lot of movies I vaguely remember seeing, but that didn't really make much impression on me. They're just sort of part of this larger cultural tapestry. Do you have any of those? I I feel like I do, but unfortunately, because they didn't make much of an impression, I, I'd have trouble identifying which. But yeah, I, I tended to lean toward genre movies. Um, mm-hmm. And somehow we uh, now are technically professional comic book podcasters. Fancy that. Um hey. And so a lot of the movies that I just sort of remembered 
seeing just because were more mainstream, non-genre specific movies. I can think of a couple. Um, Defending Your Life made an impression. Do you remember that one? Did you ever see that one? No. Um, it's about this dude who dies. He's a real shit in life, just like a selfish jerk. And um, finds that, not the afterlife exactly, but sort of limbo is this area where you, it's like a little resort you hang out in while the this cosmic court hears your case about whether you should be reincarnated uh, back onto Earth or whether you, whether you should ascend to the next plane of existence. And he falls in love with a woman there who's clearly going to ascend. And so suddenly he's very motivated to like prove that he actually was a good person and become a good person in a way it's a sort of proto the good place kind of sort of it's kind of got a groundhog day vibe to it too from the sound of it a little bit of that too um but with less uh, manipulating of women at least from what i recall i haven't seen it since i was a kid good uh yeah but uh, i remember that one i don't know do you have any that have like stuck in your brain just that you happen to see and that did click for you at least somewhat I, oh man, I remember seeing and really loving both Sister Act and A League of Their Own when they came out. Oh yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed those as well, A League of Their Own especially. I saw Sister Act again a month or so ago. It's on Disney Plus, I think. And it, it stood up a lot better than I was expecting it to. It was a lot of fun. Okay, sweet. That's good to hear, yeah. And the music is, of course, given the setup and what it is, the music is just phenomenally phenomenally good mm-hmm. oh speaking of music can we talk about yellow submarine the beatles movies in general like we had an aftercare teacher at my elementary school who loved the beatles and was obsessed with the beatles and who would just put on beatles movies during aftercare so i watched all of them like that and i know yellow submarine was your favorite my favorite problematic though it may have been was always help help is bananas man it's a lot. It's super racist. I've mentioned that. Um, it, it definitely has has a great sequence, though, where, like, all of London sings the uh, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to a tiger. <laughs> yeah. And it also features one of my, Help is one of my favorite albums. My favorite, one of my favorite Beatles albums, at least. I really, really like that era. Yeah, yeah, I remember you were always um, more of an early Beatles person than I was. I was more, like, late Beatles. I'm, I'm more mid-Beatles. I guess help is, yeah, help is, it's like early mid, maybe? I don't know. I'm no Beatles scholar. I like the stuff that's weird but still has a recognizable beat. I like the stuff that's just made of drugs, personally. <laughs> oh, But yeah, yeah, help is great. You showed that one to me, actually. And uh, even coming into it as a teenager, it was goddamn delightful, uh, except the racist parts. Um, yeah, yeah it's, yep. it's really racist. Yeah, I boy, I, w- I wish the world was less racist. Uh, understatement of the, well, I would say year, but forever anyway point being uh yellow submarine was my favorite beatles movie it is it is a it's just a fever dream of color and drugs and i don't even know how to freaking (laughs) describe it i watched it again recently because my housemate had never seen it uh, nor had anna for that matter um i i don't even know if it holds up like there's just certain you know stories or movies or shows or games or whatever that are just such a part of you that you cannot evaluate them objectively and you can't even attempt to evaluate them objectively and yeah yellow submarines that way for me it's just i like it i don't know if anybody else would oh i love it i really love it i i love it marginally less knowing that the beatles didn't do their own voices in it but i love the animation i love the weirdness of the mythology that it ekes out of a handful of different albums in just nonsense ways i love their house my ongoing obsession running obsession in every beatles movie is the version of their house 
Yeah, that's true, because they always have a house that's just kind awesome. of awesome and nonsensical. So you've been in my apartment, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it has a feature that I have always dreamed of having an apartment, and it's all because of Beatles movies, which is a sunken living room. It, it it does. I remember when I've slept on your couch, I'll I'll get up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, and um, I'm always very proud when I don't trip and kill myself. Good work. But yeah, no, um, that's I think I think that was from Help. That specifically. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I, I remember you pointing that out the first time that we watched it. It was so cool. I wanted one. <laughs> I, I do not have one that has has like a, a a bed that raises on a platform when someone plays the organ though. So we compromise I, in adulthood. You know, I mean, I know I know you guys own your current place, but you you might move somewhere else at some point, and maybe it'll have that. Oh, it's on the list. Oh, okay, good. Um, okay, so this is a weird tangent, but I also remember I don't remember if it was from Help or a different Beatles movie, but there's that sort of sexy scene where there's like. Um, I think one of the Beatles is, is playing a woman like a harp or something. Oh, yeah, do you remember yes. this? No, it's like a guitar. Okay. It's definitely help. It was definitely formative to young Jay's sexuality. Um, okay. And it's, it's definitely, the song is, is you've got to hide your love away. It's a great song. It's a um, terrific song. That, that's, was... oh, that's another one that has a cover that's better than the original. Actually, the Eddie Vedder cover of that is, is so good. Oh God, it is. Eddie Vedder's voice is just like illegally good. Um, but, uh, okay. So formative movies for sexuality it's a thing we all have them assuming we are sexual people i think um i'm going to talk about a, a little movie called barbarella queen of the galaxy <laughs> that, that i was saw definitely formative to my fear of swarms of things uh that's true the swarms of dolls are terrifying so i'm not going to say it was formative exactly exactly because i saw it you know when my sexuality was already developing but it was um a milestone i saw it at a friend's house he had managed to get a hold of a copy his mom was a lot a lot more open with the media he was allowed to consume i didn't know who jane fonda was when i watched it i didn't know that it was based on a french comic although i probably would have liked it uh, even in different ways if i had because i was a big comic fan already what I did know is that, boy, howdy, that lady uh, sure did get naked a lot, and um, so did a lot of other people, and angels don't make love, angels are love. Uh, it, it wouldn't be until many years later that I put together the fact that uh, Callisto's first appearance in X-Men is just a straight-up direct reference to Barbarella, where she captures Angel and, like, sticks him to a wall and calls him her pretty pretty. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it definitely is. <laughs> Oh man, that movie! I, I watched it again recently. Also, Anna had never seen it. Like, I, I feel like catching oh, shit, your really? partner, or yeah, I know, right? I feel like catching your partner and or bestie up on your favorite media is just like a it's like a nerd duty. You just have to do it. I mean, I think it's a lot of different type of nerd duty. Like that's something I am. T was a film major and is is a serious film nerd in ways that I've never been. And catching up and watching her favorite movies, like a lot of them are are things I would never have stumbled across existing you know, before, and they're so cool. And they're, this this, fall, this falls into my generally being an enthusiasm enthusiast category, but, like, I love that. I love getting to see other people's sort of central canons. Totally, yeah. Um, I mean, okay, I know we're talking about kid stuff, but of the stuff that Tia showed you recently, anything stand out? Oh, my God. So have you ever seen Intacto? Never heard of Intacto. It's a Spanish movie. It's, it's, I'm not going to tell you anything about it, but it's amazing. So, so my list of like the ones, the ones that are, that are ones I will, I want to watch again immediately, always ones, are Intacto, Wings of Desire, which is a lot of fun. Okay. Um, and involves angels. 
in fact, it involves some angels making love, but um, also Columbo. <laughs> uh, sorry. Uh, Wings of Desire um, and the Thin Man movies, which I had never seen and which are great. Oh, the, those are the Nick and Nora Charles ones? They are. And and some of the later ones are kind of iffy. Like once they have a kid, the the they 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 end up sort of feeling kind of diluted. Diluted, not diluted. Um, right. But the early ones especially are are just marvelous fun and they've they've got some of the best repartee and pattern performance of of that era. Oh man, yeah, I've, those have been on my list for a long time. I've always really wanted to see those. I've heard they're great. They're a lot um, of fun. Let's see. So, okay. Uh, well, I guess just to, to jump randomly around, um, we did our, like, TV shows and cartoons episode. At, was it the last Hawk Talk or the one before? Recently, anyway. Know. Some previous Hawk Talk. Time has no meaning anymore. Time has no meaning. Um, but we talked then about the Ghostbusters cartoon and the Ninja Turtles cartoon. So yes. no surprise, the movies were huge for me. Ghostbusters, again, watched it over and over and over on tape. I loved it. Looking back, it's a, it's a little weird about, um you know, consent here and there. But overall, it holds up. Did you know that Dan Aykroyd said that the um, the ghost blowjob scene was based on an actual incident in his life? I didn't know that, but that doesn't surprise me at all. That's like the most Dan Aykroyd thing I can imagine Dan Aykroyd saying. It's up there. I I just have to love that guy. It's like, no, you're just you just kind of our race dance, but you have a bunch of money and so you can just do shit. And that's not always great, but you seem to use your powers for weird rather than evil, I think. Using powers for weird rather than evil is an important bar. You know, you're talking about about those in franchise movies, and I realize that there is there's a set of four movies or two sets of two movies that I feel like we should talk about because they're movies that we both saw youngish, but didn't get, but got super, super into as teenagers. Intriguing. And they're, I'm they're, not... they're, they're two pairs of movies. One of them we watched a ton together as teenagers. The other one we did a few times, but referenced oh. a ton. And those are among the only pairs of movies that have sequels that hold up to the originals. And also include, as far as I know, the only good movie ever to come out of a Saturday Night Live sketch. These are specifically the Bill and Ted movies and the Wayne's World movies. Yes. Oh, and I, God. I feel like these we we could have kind of taken this this degree of obsession as 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 predicting our ultimate relationship shape. But <laughs> uh, now I'm just wondering, like, which of us is Wayne versus Garth? But I think it's probably more of a Bill and Ted situation. We're just oh, different flavors definitely. of Goofy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh, God. Um. Yeah, geez. No, they were great. Like, uh, the Wayne's World movies especially, I just unabashedly love. Bill and Ted, um, I really, really love the second one. The first one is less near and dear to my heart. Um, both of those sets of movies, like, there's some problematic shit in them. I mean, they were made in the, the 90s, or maybe Bill and Ted started in the late 80s. So that's common. But there's just so much good shit, and they are so funny. And Bill and Ted has a surprising amount of heart. Bill and Ted has a ton of heart. Like Bill and Ted, the Bill and Ted movies are stupid, but they're really earnest. They are. Oh man. Okay. The new Bill and Ted movie that's coming out. I yes. am just legitimately excited. Oh God. Same. Yeah. I, and I mean, I love the character designs. I love that at least one of, one of the kids in it is played by a genderqueer actor. Oh really? That's awesome. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember which 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 of them it is, but yeah. Um, I love I love how thoughtful the character designs and costuming are. 
Yeah. For the kids. And, uh, you're referring to Bill and Ted's kids that they named after each other? Yeah, Bill and Ted's kids whom they named after each other, which is adorable and accurate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are so many movies where I'm like, no, no, just just let it stay dead. But with Bill and Ted 3, I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I feel fine about that. I feel fine about, you know, having a movie about these two teenagers who were supposed to fix the world and then they get to adulthood and they're like, shit, the world's the same. What did we do wrong? That, um... I mean, we're in our 30s. I, that, that speaks to me a little. I don't know. I guess we made a cool X-Men podcast. I mean, George Carlin never stepped out of a phone booth and told me that I was going to save the universe. But it's 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 a movie that I feel whose who's aspirational joy is something that I feel like I kind of need right now. Yeah. God, basically that. That's the thing. Dumb but earnest is... I don't know. It's it's like the the long shot of filmmaking. You know, sometimes you just need a, a piece of art that's like, no, it's going to be fine because we are so excited about it being fine. Well, part of the joy of the Bill and Ted movies, and especially of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, is that the logic in it is ridiculous and it's self consciously ridiculous, and it works. And I'm thinking specifically of of their their evil robot doppelgangers of them made. And they conclude that the only effective way to combat that, those is to make good robot versions of themselves. Like, and that's totally, where they go, and it works. Yeah, it totally works, because they have a Martian with a great butt with them who can help, because yes. of course they do, and they're hanging out with death. And, like, I, I don't know, you know, there, there's... A lot of movies are accused of being derivative, but Bill and Ted's bogus journey just, just takes this sharp left turn m mere minutes in into a realm of pure what-the-hell-are-you-doing, and I love it. I'm going to go ahead and say that if it were animated, Belgian, and made in the 70s, people would have thought it was pure genius. I suspect that's true. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, I, I didn't even think about Bill and Ted or, or, um, or Wayne's World, but yeah, you're right. Those are just great. And man, Wayne's World, like, I would say we probably quoted those movies more than we quoted anything else when we were younger, and like, we still do a fair bit. I'm not going to try to do it now because trying to speak in unison over Skype and especially while recording never goes well. But we used to be able to do the entire Brown M&M speech from Wayne's World 2 in unison. It was a really upsetting party trick. Oh, yeah. We did that back in college. Like, kind of maybe maybe too much. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Oh, geez. Uh, so I guess those are the big ones for me. I mean... My brother was super into musicals, and so I watched uh, specifically West Side Story, The Sound of Music, and um, one other that I can't think of right now, like a whole, whole bunch. My family actually used to occasionally get around the piano and, and sing from like a music book from, from those plays that my mom had. That um, is inordinately charming and also the least surprising thing. Yeah, yeah, my, my brother was, uh, he, he had a lot more musical talent than my mom and I put together. I was really into musical theater, but my favorites didn't tend to be ones with good movie adaptations. Um, well, okay, so I know I know you were really into into the woods back in the day, which which uh, yeah. you showed me and, and I love. Oh, yeah, um, well, I showed you I showed you the, the the DVD recording of the original Broadway cast. Exactly. Yeah, I've, I've I, never seen the Disney movie and I'm not planning to. But no, that original um, recording for, is... for one specific re reason, which is that I went to the track listing and it said no more and then parentheses instrumental. And I was like, nope, I'm out. 
Oh, oh man. And they um they made Red Riding Hood like a little girl and so I mean it's good given that that, that oh. they removed all the subtext, but the whole point of that character is subtext. Yeah. So. Yeah, is 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 sexual awakening and subtext. Did they did they at least double cast Cinderella's Prince and the Wolf? Uh I don't know. I haven't seen it either. I just remember reading about that and that was what made me decide to not see it. Yeah. So I I have not I have not seen the movie adaptation of that. Um Sweeney Todd again I've I had I had a taped off TV VHS copy of of I think the London cast um that was the with one, the Angela Lansbury with Angela Lansbury and um uh Glenn Hearn I think Yeah but but more importantly Angela Lansbury she Oh Angela so Lansbury good. was serious serious musical theater business I mean she still is like she's she's been in and created so many roles so those um pippin which there's sort of an okayish recording of a broadway production of if i recall but there's definitely never been a movie adaptation of that's a weird um, one it's it's weird and it's i think a really fundamentally live show i think you'd have to really change it to make an adaptation of it that didn't feel really hollow um case in point being you know, I, I think you could do a good adaptation of Sweeney Todd. I don't think the Tim Burton one is one. I we I saw it. It I don't like it. Yeah, it was like fine. It, it was no it one was in it okay can movie. sing, which is a problem. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, you know what with the whole musical thing. Uh, wasn't Wolverine and Les Misérables, and apparently not a lot of people could sing. I didn't see that either. I have not seen that, but um, he is actually a really substantial musical theater actor. That's his background. If you're talking about Hugh Jackman. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just heard that some of the other people couldn't. I, I haven't seen that production. I love, I love Les Rob. Like, I, I think it's a phenomenal show. It's one of the most deliberately written and constructed musicals out there. And it's that in two different languages and two different, two different versions. Like, it's, instead, it's, instead of having an, a translation, it's just two distinct shows in English and in French. That's a really cool way of doing it. I mean, much more work, obviously. And, you know, you're not going to get the same, a similar experience between languages, but at least then it's going to be like optimized for each language. But it's phenomenal. It just has this super intricate constru um, construction um, much later. But Fun Home is, is again, I think, a musical you could probably make an OK movie of, but which would need to be pretty significantly altered. The fact that it's already an adaptation probably helps a lot there. I feel like West Side Story was a very good movie. Um, yeah. it's, it's like a it's a million hours long because the play was a million hours long and I wasn't so big on that. Um, you know, actually, I didn't think it was when I was a kid because I only ever watched the first half because my mom thought the second half was too scary. <laughs> um, and, you know, like I, I come from a Jewish family on her side, so I can see her being, you know, concerned about all of the like Nazi stuff. Um, but, yeah, I remember West seeing Side Story. Uh, no, You're I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the sound of music. I'm, th I'm thinking of the sound of music. I swapped this. No, West Side Story, <laughs> as far as I know, different. has no Nazis. Uh, West Side Story is also a million hours long. Um, but yeah, the sound of music, I just saw the first half. West Side Story, you know what? I think my mom did the same thing. Because all those people die in the second half of West Side yeah. Story. It's, it's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Um, I did see a phenomenal live version of that, which actually made me, in retrospect, like the movie even more. Uh, I feel like we've, we've kind of... Um, tangents it off into musical no, theater here musicals but. of our childhood so a big one of mine both as music as as a, as a recording and as a movie actually because i can go back to that was the pirates of penzance oh yeah that the one gilbert is and sullivan operetta and i was i was super into gilbert and sullivan anyway i had i had the copy of the gilbert and sullivan full librettos from the new college library and just kept renewing it for three years <laughs> when i was a kid <laughs> You you were not a, a student there, yeah. No, but I had I had a library card because I was a relative of a faculty member. 
Oh, okay. This 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 was not illegitimate. Like I I did it right. I just you know abused the system in that one very very specific case. Yeah, that's like letter of the law, not spirit of the law, right there. I'm not sure if anyone else was specifically looking for that book during that era, but yeah, it was it was huge. It was a really cool book, and it had all of them in there. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. I... But the important thing to know, by the way, about the Pirates of Penzance, the movie, if you haven't seen it. And and speaking of actors who are mostly known for for you know non singing in fairly serious dramatic roles in a lot of cases, who have major musical theater chops, Kevin Klein plays the Pirate King in mm-hmm. the movie version of the Pirates of Penzance. He does it brilliantly. You should watch it. That freaking guy. I enjoy him in so many different things. I think my my current favorite is is his recurring role in Bob's Burgers. But he's been so good in so many places. Oh, he's Mr. Fishlutter, isn't he? Yeah, I think we actually talked about that very briefly in our, our TV episode, I think. Right. God, I for me there's there's a specific like what watch and wonder at the scope that is Kevin Klein series of movies that's like Dave, Sophie's Choice, A Fish Called Wanda, and The Pirates of Penzance. Oh, that's way bigger than the Wesley Snipes equivalent of um To Wang Fu Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar and Blade. Yes. Or I guess you could do the same with Tawang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, and Roadhouse. Or Tawang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, and the Super Mario Brothers movie. I have complicated mixed feelings about Tawang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Um, but It's entirely reasonable. It's entirely yeah. reasonable. Love Roadhouse, though. <laughs> Freaking Roadhouse. That was my stepfather's favorite movie when I was growing up, and he first showed it to me when I was a teenager, and I was not able to fully appreciate it at that point, but now I understand the glory that is Roadhouse. Wait, Really? Oh, yeah. I never knew that. That's amazing. I, I'm just sort of recalibrating everything I know about Baron now. Yeah, yeah. He, um, and I'm not sure how much of his enjoyment of it is like straight up earnest enjoyment and how much of it is enjoying the camp. I, I honestly don't know. I don't know if those are different things for him. I think they might just be the same. Yeah, I feel like that's that's a really thin line for him. And he is someone who tends to so earnestly, but also knowingly enjoy things that... I can't imagine making that separation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, Roadhouse. Um, so, okay, I, I think that's most of the stuff that I was thinking of. I mean, there were other things. Like, I really enjoyed um, the first Superman movie when I was a kid. Uh, I liked uh, Back to the Future. I think my first theater memory at all was seeing Back to the Future Part 2. But um, those were kind of all the major ones for me. Jay, did you have any other other major ones that were on your mind? I'm sure I'm going to think of something much much later but those are really that's that's really the list for me or at least the ones that have stuck i didn't really start paying close attention to movies until i was a teenager i don't think yeah yeah well i mean also when when you're a teenager you have much more agency in choosing movies rather than just over and over watching whatever videotapes were sitting around that hadn't broken yet yeah that's a really good point yeah so uh listeners there there you go there's some of our our cinematic influences from uh back in the day the x-men movies didn't come out until we were significantly older um so we we hope you enjoyed this trip down a uh, cinematic decaying videotape be kind rewinds memory lane and um yeah if you have any that were uh, big for you um throw those into the the comments for this episode if you feel like it um so i guess that's what we have for you with hawk talk this time around Yeah, we'll be back next week, I think, talking about X-Force. Yes, yes, the beginning of the new direction for X-Force after X-Men Prime. It's, there are good things, there are bad things, I don't know. Uh, It's interesting stuff.
they get new uniforms. They're very purple. And we'll be there to explain it all. Take care, all.